Well, hello, Brunsfield Evangelical Church. It is a delight uh, to be able to do this for you. I was going to say with you, but sadly, of course, uh, we can't do that quite yet. I'm all the way down in England, uh, in Cheltenham, uh, where I live with my wife, Susie, and our son, Shasta. Uh, I know that we'll have friends amongst you. Um, For those who don't know me, I uh, have been in Scotland for the past 10 years and have just recently moved south. Um, and it is a delight uh, to be able to uh, serve you in this way as we look at how to engage our atheist friends uh, with the gospel. And I'm aware that I'm coming in in the middle of a series that you're doing um, on how to speak to people uh, from different worldviews uh, in a way that invites them into uh, the wonderful life of following Jesus. It is possible that you're attending this particular one in the expectation and perhaps hope that it will largely consist of me putting up ridiculous quotes from Richard Dawkins and deconstructing and mocking them. Now, I'm not necessarily knocking that. There's a place for it, uh, but it has been done a hundred times by men and women who are far better placed uh, to do so than, than, than I am. So I won't be doing that. I'm not actually convinced that the materialistic evangelistic atheism of Dawkins and co is what the majority of our atheist friends hold though no doubt some of them do Uh, so you can just follow him on twitter and read the comments Uh, but this evening we're going to do a little bit of hard work what i want to do before we get started is to stress that the trick as it were to all evangelism is quite simply to know the gospel The gospel isn't going to change. Christ came, died, rose and will come again. He did all of that because we're under right judgment for our sin and need to be rescued both from our enslavement to our sin and from the judgment that is coming our way. The gospel doesn't change. But how we say it changes depending on who we're speaking to. I'm going to pause and let you react to that, however you see fit. I'm not talking about apologising for the gospel or about hiding parts of it, about exaggerating the nice bits and fluffing up the hard bits, none of that. But when we say the same thing to different people, well, here's an example. I'm going to see if I can share my screen here. Um, If I wrote these words to different people. There we go. Is that working? Wonderful. It's like writing a happy birthday sign. Have I left enough space? Just about. Now, if I said that to or showed that to an English student, they might think I'm quoting Milton's Paradise Lost, talking about the pain formidable. Uh, If I showed it to a Frenchman, he might think that i discovered a wonderful new bakery and had just had some powerful some wonderful bread. Uh, if I showed it to Archie Winnington Ingram, he would think that I was describing my latest weight session. Different people will react differently to exactly the same words. It's a very silly analogy. Um, probably wasn't worth it for uh, the split screen, but there we go. Different people will hear different things from the same words. Once a week, I have a Zoom call with a friend who lives in Nigeria, translating the Bible into local languages. And he uh, told me of a disastrous translation story. And uh, he sent me the result 
the following had been translated from the King James Version of Psalm 23 into the Tlingitch language of Alaskan natives back in the 60s. Originally, in the King James, it had read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me besides quiet waters. That turned into, The Lord is my goat hunter, I don't want him. He knocks me down the mountain. He drags me down to the beach. Now, what happened was that the local whom they'd hired to translate appeared to understand something quite different from that phrase, I shall not want. And because he'd heard that wrong and understood that to mean I don't want him, that affected his understanding of the whole of the rest of it. He then saw... um, the idea of being made to lie down, not as being rested, but as being pushed down by a bully and then dragged to the beach. Um, you'll be relieved to know that the uh, translation was rescued uh, and and properly done. But do you see what's happening there? Same words can mean something completely different. That's what the translator understood that psalm to mean when he read it. Okay, so we understand different people hear different things when same things are said, which means that if we're going to keep the meaning of the gospel steady, we'll have to communicate it differently depending on our audience. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Do get it open if you can. Um, I'll read from verse 18 of chapter 1. Just give you a second. From verse 18. Paul writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And this is the bit that's particularly crucial to what we're talking about. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this is Paul saying something quite similar to what we've already said. The gospel, and especially the cross, will get different reactions from different people. The Greeks say how foolish it is to believe that God could become a human and die. The Jews say how weak Jesus must be to allow that to happen. They're objecting to the same thing, but in different ways. The gospel, you see, confronts every single worldview at different points, and it does combat with it. But what we also see in 1 Corinthians, in verse 24, is that it also connects. To those who are called both Greeks and Jews, they can see that there is indeed power in Christ. There is indeed wisdom in Christ, and far more than can be found on earth. I'm nabbing the uh, phrase uh, connect and confront from a chap called Dan Strange, by the way, if you want to look him up and do some more thinking on it. 
So the gospel connects and confronts, and that shapes how the message is heard and how the message is spoken. And that's why Paul's sermons to the Gentiles can be distinguished from his sermons to Jews. But he's faithful to the gospel throughout. Now, all of that preamble is there because atheism, what we're talking about today, isn't a belief structure. Um, it's a belief for sure, but not a structured one. There isn't a formula per se on how to evangelize to atheists. The last time I led an atheist to Christ was, as it happens, it was in Edinburgh at a university mission week. I met the guy on a Monday and he wasted no time in telling me that he thought there was no God, that the Bible was completely false and the God within it was evil. On the Tuesday, he believed God was real and that the Gospels were true. But he didn't become a Christian till the Friday. Because his atheism wasn't primarily built upon the idea that God couldn't exist. It was built on the supposition that God was not worth following, that he was a homophobic, transphobic tyrant who wanted to control women's bodies and release men to do evil in the world. So my carefully cultivated material about the reliability of the dating of the Gospel of Mark wasn't quite hitting the bullseye, was it? When I was at school, atheism tended to be Dawkins' atheism. Christians are dumb and wicked. God is as likely to exist as a flying spaghetti monster, etc., etc. And many people still find uh, his and his less shrill companions' arguments to be persuasive. We tend to call them anti-theists or new atheists. But from my experience from doing missions, I mean, all around the UK, admittedly, normally with students, most atheists are functional atheists. The most convenient worldview is for there to be no God, especially considering that the God of the Bible is at odds with their moral code. And actually here, I want to just take a step back and explore kind of what I mean by worldviews. I'm going to go back to uh, my iPad and share this screen. And I want to draw, I'm, I'm afraid I'm terrible at drawing. Um, but what I want to do here is examine what it means, uh, or what I mean rather, when we say worldviews. And I mean, unsurprisingly, it's what we view the world, that's what that circle is, what we view it to be at its most basic system. So we believe that there are humans on earth, that's us. Uh, animals, birds are easiest to draw, and fir trees are easiest to draw about nature. So we'll put all of that there. And so the question then becomes, well, where do we put God? And so many Eastern religions would put God there. Um, deists might put God there and say, well, God made the world, and he said go or bang, uh, but then had nothing more to do with it or could have nothing more to do with it, depending on the belief structure. Christians obviously want to extend that arrow uh, and say, well, God actually came into this world. Um, but what we're talking about today is this one, atheism, where the world is here, it exists, and there is no God. But what I want to do is add something to this diagram and put just the word morality in here into the structure of the world. Um, 
I think that diagram might have been more useful in my head, but hopefully that's been of some use to you. Um, but I really wanted to make sure that we understand that for many, many atheists, human rights and other facets of morality are not something that humans have come up with, but something that humans have discovered scientifically, uh, many might say. It's part of the unavoidable makeup of the world. So if that's part of their fundamental view of the world, then any new thought that they're assessing, they're saying how well it fits into that framework. I think we need to be ready for that. Many atheists will hold to their morality with absolute steadiness, possibly with more steadiness than your average Christian, simply because it's at the heart of their worldview. So scientism or materialism is much more rarely at the very centre of atheist belief anymore, but it is still out there. So the questions we have to ask when we're faced with atheists to whom we want to tell the gospel, which, by the way, is, is all of them, are where does the gospel confront this person and where does the gospel connect with this person? And I think we're used to thinking that this is probably the same for everyone. In fact, I think we tend to assume that people have the exact same hang-ups as we do, or as we did when we were first looking at Christianity. Um, for me and for my friends, the doctrine of hell was one of the biggest pills to swallow when looking at Christianity. But what do you think is harder for a victim of serious assault to understand? That there's eternal punishment for those who do evil? Well, they've seen and experienced that evil in the worst way. And actually, that's quite easy for them to understand that some things require just total punishment. Or do you think they find it perhaps harder to understand that there's a way for wicked people to be forgiven and to spend eternity in glory? We need to make sure that we're getting right what we think is connecting with them and what confronts them, because how we then speak into those things will affect how they see the gospel. And when you think of it like that, it's no surprise to realise that for many people affected by the Me Too movement, which statistically is a vast number of people, the idea of God's judgment is a point of connection, not confrontation. So if you go into a conversation about God's judgment by arming and ahhing and say, oh, no, God's nice, really. Judgment is more something we do to ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then we're, we're holding a flush, but just playing a single high card. This is a chance to say how much God despises wickedness, how other false gods shirk their responsibility to enact justice. And then we bring that connection to a point of confrontation. We demonstrate that God is so holy that everyone falls short of his standards, and that includes them. And people see this, too, in the world around us. So we connect again. No one's uncancelable, are they? God then shows mercy so that those who do repent of their evil can be saved. Because that's what people want to see. They are thirsty for justice and desperately in need of mercy. And until they see the cross... There's literally no way for them to be quenched of both desires. Either justice or mercy has to suffer until people see the cross of Christ. No way at all. That is the power of God and the wisdom of God. They meet there. That's where they meet.
Look at someone like Rachel Den Hollander. Uh, she's an American Christian and victim survivor of one of the most prolific abusers of the century. Her testimony and impact statement uh, at Larry Nassar's trial did two things. It played a huge part in putting him to jail uh, for the rest of his life. And she also offered him saving mercy. She was able to do both those things because of her understanding of the Christian view of both justice and mercy. And as a result, millions of Americans following the trial heard something of the gospel and all over the world as well, not on the periphery of the gospel, but at the very center of it. The universal offer of forgiveness from a God who does not shy away from justice. So things that we might just dismiss as cultural, important, but cultural issues are never actually that far away from the gospel. Let me take another example from what some might disparagingly call the woke movement, which by and large is rather atheist. That word, by the way, is woke is rather significant. We might uh, come to that later on. But I wonder if you guys are familiar with the term cultural appropriation. It's often raised with regards to white Americans dressing up as Native Americans at Halloween, or Jamie Oliver was accused of it a year or two ago uh, when he brought out his Jamaican jerk chicken recipe. Well, what cultural appropriation is, is when someone makes something valuable to them, then someone from a different culture takes that valuable thing, empties it of all of its meaning and value, and uses it cheaply. So to take the headdress example, in the native cultures around the Great Plains, the presentation of an eagle feather is considered to be one of the highest marks of respect. They're so significant that in many cases, only two or three would be awarded in a whole lifetime. But when enough feathers are collected together, they can be incorporated into a headdress. So it's no real surprise that Native Americans are offended when drunk teenagers stagger about them at music festivals. And Christians definitely know a similar feeling when a cross is used casually, don't we? Now, obviously, I'm not here primarily to talk to you about cultural appropriation, but this is another huge area of conversation in which we can see the gospel is just waiting to be preached. It highlights another area where the gospel connects with people that we often miss. What does this popular idea of cultural appropriation said at its most basic level where it says that creators have rights over what they've made it says that it's wicked to take something made by a creator to then empty it of its original value and meaning and to use it cheaply against the creator's wishes which means that if there is a god then he does have a right to judge and we should look to him first and foremost when deciding how to use his creation, whether that be the world around us or our own bodies. Now, obviously, you can see we're heading to a point of confrontation fairly quickly, but that's good. We don't want to be persuading atheists that they already agree with us on everything. Otherwise, they'll walk away thinking that we agree nicely and still not know the gospel. But do you see the point of connection? Do you see how in telling the simple gospel, which includes talk about human sinfulness and God's judgment over us, a lot of the thinking's already there in people's minds, if we can just point them to it. I mean, 
atheists, modern atheists, many of them believe very, very firmly in progress, which is simply a reworking of the redemptive history that we see in the Bible. There's certainly no historical reason to believe in it, as far as I'm concerned. We'll move on because we don't have a lot of time left. And all of that was just to persuade you that the gospel is already interacting within people's worldviews, and we need to be searching for those uh, areas. I've given you examples rather than formulae. But as you engage with your friends, as you listen to them and understand their worldviews, be alert to those points of connection. The last thing I want to talk to you about is something called defeater beliefs, which we've touched on slightly uh, with my NAF circle diagrams earlier. I apologize for them. Um, I'm not yet confident with the tech. Um, but a, a defeater belief is, put simply, a belief which defeats other beliefs. So some defeater beliefs are moral. I, if I believe that it's morally wrong for anyone to make a judgment, a moral judgment on what someone else does with their bodies, then that automatically defeats the idea of there being a good God who will say something like marriage should be between one man and one woman. The Bible statement that God made mankind male and female is defeated by other, de other beliefs morally. Other defeated beliefs are more structural. I believe everything is material, therefore there can be nothing spiritual. Um, or philosophical. I don't think that atheism is a belief, Therefore, I'm not guilty of any assumptions an atheist uh, may well think. So it's our job to locate and get past those defeated beliefs. And the only possible way you have of identifying them correctly is to live alongside non-Christians. You might be able to listen to a talk like this and have a good guess, but you might be wrong and making assumptions about their beliefs, which never makes someone want to listen to you about anything else. So we need to be making sure that we're not just speaking to our past experience of atheists, but we're speaking to John or Sue or whoever it is that's right in front of us right now. Um, I'm totally out of time. So let me just list some things. Uh, that we need to have in mind. So firstly, live authentically and don't apologize for your beliefs. Listen, some things aren't going to be really off-putting to people at first as we live as Christians in the world, and we are increasingly having to get used to that. But if you apologize for those things and hide them, then when people do draw near, those issues that we've apologized for in the past appear then to be huge cracks, fissures in Christianity. I know of one pro-choice atheist who could not believe how little Christians cared about abortion. This person believed that a fetus was simply a part of a woman's body, but they said, if Christians believe that we're killing children, then why don't they do or say anything? I know that's a sensitive issue, and I hope... That hasn't upset any of you that I've uh, used that as an illustration. But this person went on to say, sometimes it seems like they're only pretending to believe in Christianity because they're not acting on their beliefs. That's just one example. Don't dumb down your Christianity in front of people. Authenticity is a big deal. And it makes Christianity look more like a club than an authentic belief built around a relational God if we 
hide parts of the gospel, hide parts of our beliefs from how we live in front of other people. So one, live authentically. Don't shy away from the hard questions. In a world full of taboos, people are thirsty. Thirsty as anything for genuine answers. Two, we've already covered this in some detail. Find out where the gospel confronts and connects with people's beliefs, which leads us to three, which is know the gospel. You have to know the gospel in order to bring people to know Christ. And according to Paul, that's all you need to describe your ministry, whether that's uh, to friends at work or school or in the neighborhood or something more formal. That's the only thing you need to describe your ministry as a success. At the beginning of First Thessalonians 2, Paul says that his coming to them was not in vain. Why? Because he had boldness to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Friends, pray for courage. We need it. But remember that the gospel is true. All we need to succeed in our mission is to declare it boldly. And an eternity with the Lord Jesus awaits. Would it not be wonderful to share that eternity with someone to whom you chose to tell the gospel? Pray for your friends, pray for courage, and take heart that the gospel is true. Christ died, Christ rose, and Christ will come again to gather all who are his, wherever they are right now.